Hello, hello, and hello, visionaries. Thank you for bringing your beautiful ears right here for episode 12 of Calm Conversations About Learning, where we lean in to re-envision our children's education through insightful and humanizing perspectives with the folks who matter most, parents, teachers, and of course, our young folks. I'm your host, Zanani, parent, BB, board game lover, and educator for life. And in case you're looking at your phone wondering what time it is, well, it's time for some pillar talk. That's right. Time for me to offer a little vim and vigor for your inner visionary by sharing the benefits of my calm pillar framework and backing up my pillarology with a little research. Now, if you're all like, hey, what's all this pillar stuff all about? I'd like to direct you to the bonus episode entitled A Little Pillar Talk, where I give an overview of the pillars. But If you're like, yeah, yeah, Zanani, I've been to that episode, listened to that episode and bought the pillar t-shirt. Let's get to the lesson pillar now. Well, okay, then let's get to it and do it. So this month's pillar talk is about the lesson and Last week, I kicked it off with a sorry, not sorry episode about teaching children lessons that really aren't lessons at all. The lesson pillar is layered and deep, and we can't expect children to learn the lessons that matter when we ourselves aren't clear about why we're teaching those lessons. So I guess you could say that teaching the lesson is in part about learning the lesson, which means that effective lesson planning should begin with intention and end with impact. I'm going to come back to this, but let's start with the definition of lesson. On the face of it, a lesson is the material that's being taught and learned. To break it down, it's the content or skill, the what or the how-to of something. I call it the action of the curriculum because you're putting it into motion through its delivery. In teacher school, I was taught to do lesson planning, which involved familiarizing myself with California standards for English language arts and writing these elaborate lessons that were so detailed that they were scripted. What I would say and how students might be expected to respond and what I would do and what I wanted students to do. And let me say this. I'm grateful for those multi-page lessons that I had to churn out. They were a pain in my butt when I had to do them. And clearly, if I was teaching three classes with only a few hours of prep a week, that kind of lesson planning was unsustainable. So over the years, I used more efficient templates that I'd found on the internet and eventually created my own to fit my teaching style, my students' learning needs, and my classroom environment. Because here was the reality once I left teacher school. As beautiful as my five-page lessons were, and they were, y'all, I wasn't teaching standards. I was teaching children. Children who rarely responded or behaved according to script, whose answers and questions and reactions to the content and skills I was teaching was bigger than those standards deeper than a script and definitely more delightful, especially when I went off script and really started to teach to real humans. So remember when I said that part of teaching the lesson involves learning the lesson? My first year of teaching was at a small alternative school for expelled high school students. I'd sub there and the principal was so impressed 
when she walked into the bungalow and saw that I was actually teaching, actually delivering a lesson on writing narratives. These young folks, mostly boys, were, after all, deemed gangbangers, potheads, drug dealers, and teacher assaulters, and here I was asking them to be students for 100 minutes a day. When the principal told me that she loved what I was doing with the students, which was code for engaging them in learning, and that she wanted to hire me for the next school year, I said yes, primarily because it was a small school and it was full of black and brown students. Unfortunately, well, of course, you know, it was a school for expelled students. Well, that first year, I learned a lot of lessons that sent me home crying many, many days But a major lesson that I learned was the importance of being intentional in the lessons I designed. And I have to add this disclaimer. In my years of teaching, I'd been fortunate, unlike many public school teachers who are de-skilled with policies that require them to adhere to scripts and weekly lesson submissions, I've always had the creative license to interpret the standards. And I will be honest, I know that I wouldn't have been able to teach with those kinds of constraints. Part of learning the lesson to teach the lesson requires a certain amount of freedom, freedom to think, to experience, and to fail, and to allow for feedback and reflection. Also, unlike many teachers I knew, I didn't resent the standards, not the state standards, nor the common core standards, because I understood them for what they were, a structure. And y'all know how much I love me some structures. So I use the structure of the standards to guide the content of my lessons. But it was intention that made the lesson deliverable and receivable. Initially, when I considered my intention concerning the lesson, I asked, what do students need to know, learn, and do? And of course, this is an important and valid question, but as I taught that first year and had the space to experiment according to the children who were in the room with me, and by the way, this was always changing as students who were expelled were there as a holding space, waiting for their fate to be determined. Would they be allowed to return to their original school? Would they be sent to an out-of-district program for students who were just deemed, you know, bad. (laughs) So my intention had to have some flexibility. Interestingly, the more unpredictable my classes were, and this was super challenging at first, the more intentionality slowed me down. And the question morphed into what kind of learning experience do I want my students to have? This question encompassed smaller questions about environment, engagement, um, structure, and relationships, especially relationships. In case you're wondering what planning and teaching lessons has to do with relationships, let me tell you about Deontay. Deontay lived with his grandmother, and he had been expelled for fighting and constant defiance. He didn't participate in class much, but when he did, his responses were pretty insightful. His overall literacy skills, however, were weak, and his anger was pretty, pretty strong. And so this one day, he had just been sitting there, um, and I asked him, like, for the third time to complete his work, which was a writing assignment. 
and he suddenly exploded. And guess what? So did I. I lost my temper and I told him that he could do the work or get out, which deep inside I wished he'd do. Get out. He he was never absent. And those hard eyes, that resting rage face, his resistance to what seemed like everything and everybody, it had bubbled to the top for me. It was the first and last time that I yelled at a student. He didn't leave class and I didn't write a referral. I have two sons and I didn't believe in referrals unless things were out of control. And as frustrated and powerless as I felt, I wanted to believe that I could be like Sidney Poitier from To Serve With Love and turn Deontay's hard heart soft. But he refused to talk to me after class. What he did do, however, is go home and tell his grandmother that I had called him a nigger. Yep, a word that I didn't even use, a word that I regularly argued the politics of using with my educated friends, a word that I would never use to describe a child, even if I had been a user of the word. I was mortified and officially pissed off because I hate being lied on. But by that time, I'd met with Deontay's grandmother, who looked so tired that for a moment, I forgot my anger and Deontay's anger too. And it was about this little old black woman who didn't know what to do with him, which she told me after I assured her that I had not called her grandson a nigger. Plus, there had been witnesses, the other students, who didn't support his claim. But Deontay, well, he dug in and he would do things like mutter under his breath whenever I walked by him on campus or he completely shut down in class, sitting there glaring at me, which, you know, at first made me a little uncomfortable. But then I realized that he was trying to intimidate me, that he was trying to get kicked out of class. And I also realized, sadly, that we'd both lost a battle. He refused to learn from me. But every now and then I would catch him wanting to participate, like when I taught a lesson on the word nigger, ironically or not. It was a hit with the class. And for a long moment, Deontay was actually leaning in and his glare had become a gleam of interest. That was until our eyes met, mine all hopeful and his gone dead again. So according to the restorative practices handbook, reparation of harm generally falls into two categories, concrete reparation and symbolic reparation, or it could be a combination of the two. Concrete reparation is repairing or replacing something tangible, returning a stolen calculator, for instance, or repainting a graffitied wall. Symbolic reparation is saying or doing something that acknowledges feelings, demonstrates remorse, or restores peace and harmony. Symbolic reparation frequently involves apology. Reparation should stem from the desire to make things right. I'd wanted to make things right, but even as a 40-year-old who'd raised two black boys and had experienced her own anger issues and had lived with her grandmother, I had no idea how to repair the harm. And back then, I knew nothing about restorative practices. Relationships matter. Maybe Deontay wouldn't have ever been fully present in class that semester. But 
the day that I lost my cool and engaged in a power struggle with him, I lost the opportunity to ever find out. I've heard it said that the lesson is the contract between the teacher and student, but I would argue that the relationship is the contract. No action really occurs unless both teacher and student are present and engaged. So whether you're a classroom teacher or a parent who is managing your child's learning experience, when lesson planning, begin with the relationship. How are you doing your part to nurture the relationship? Get real with yourself if you're experiencing any frustration in the relationship. What do you want for your students or child? How do you want them to feel when they're learning? How do you want to feel when you're delivering a lesson? What do you want the energy, the environment to feel like? How do you contribute to that energy? These were the kinds of questions that I began to ask myself after that semester with Deontay. In episode 10, guest Renice Washington said something really powerful. She said that the teacher controls the weather. And this is so true. So we have to ask ourselves, do we compound volatile situations do we remind ourselves that we're the adults in the room? And in this case of the classroom, do we remind ourselves that we have other students to protect bad weather conditions to deliver lessons that students will receive with eagerness and engagement begins with learning our own lessons. Some folks might say that Deontay was just one of the unreachable ones and maybe they would be right, but I could never afford to believe that about my students. I believe that once you begin to believe this about one child, your expectations become subjective, case by case, child by child, mood by mood. Also, ultimately, I was not responsible for Deontay's behavior, only my own. So next time you plan a lesson, make it intentional by planning for the kind of experience you want your child or students to have from your lesson. And if you want to take this to the next level, make the lesson planning and delivery a withable opportunity by posing these questions to your child or students. Ask them what kind of learning experience they'd like to have or how they'd like to feel when they're learning. Because one, this nurtures the relationship. Two, gives them agency in determining the experiences they want to have in general. And three, it makes them accountable for their contribution to their learning experience. Remember, autonomy, audacity, accountability. Thank you, visionaries, for leaning in and learning the lesson. Well, part of it anyway. We still have to talk about impact. So, in a couple of weeks, in episode 14, I'll do some calm keeping and share the importance of impact. For your visionary homework, I'd like you to journal. Journal about the teaching and learning experience that you envision for your child or your students. What would that look like? What would you look like? What would you sound like? And don't censor yourself because it's your journal. You don't have to share it and you don't have to be a goody-goody because, well, being a goody-goody will get you nowhere with this exercise. So ask yourself, what's my lesson? But in the meantime, and until next time, stay well, stay wonderful, and stay calm.